traffic is sort of, I've, I've started to regard it as like the weather. There's, you, you can't do much about it, and uh, it's un, well, it's sort of predictable. You sort of know what times of the day, but you never are sure because it can pop up anywhere, anytime. Um, and it's, a, it's an opportunity for practice. Traffic, traffic happens. <laughs> um, my name is uh, Tony Bernhardt, and I am a friend and, and student of Sylvia's. And uh, I just, I so enjoy getting a chance to come and visit with you guys, um, I guess occasionally. Um, And in putting together some some thoughts for sharing with you, there's been a line that's been going through my head for a week, and it's generated all kinds of of uh, associated um, uh, thoughts. And and I, so I wanted to start with it's just a, a line of John Lennon's, which is "Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans." Um, and it's been particularly striking to me, aside from the fact that he, you know, puts in there while you are busy making other plans, um, because basically other plans happen too. Um, but but what, what has been particularly striking for me is this notion that it happens. It just happens. I mean, basically this life, this consciousness, awareness that we're in the midst of, did any of us here pick this? You know, it it just happened. There's a um, in in current neuroscience, which is sort of where um, a lot of the the cutting edge academic thinking is going on right now. It's a little metaphor that that, that pops up occasionally, and the, the idea is if you toss a rock into the air and then give it consciousness in the midst of its arc. It's going to take responsibility for what it's doing and uh, you know, make sense of, of what's going on as if it were motivated, as if it were intentional. And we're sort of in the same, sort of in the same uh, spot. But really what's going on is that it's all happening to us. Even us is happening to us. Even you is happening to us. The thoughts of self, the thoughts of me and mine, they happen. There's a, um, a study that's been uh, floating around. I first heard about it from uh, Andy Olensky at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Um, a guy named Benjamin Lippett, who is a, a neuroscientist at the University of San Francisco, did a little experiment. This is in the 80s, I guess. And... Um, in the experiment, he wired everybody up uh, so that he could see what's going on or that something was going on. I was amazed. I just, I just became a grandfather again and went to see um, uh, my new granddaughter while in, in the hospital. And they, the nurses came by. This is a total aside, but um, they came by. She was less than a day old, and they wired up her head and they put little ear, ear muffs on, and they did a hearing test. What they did was they just did little clicks into the ears, and they measured whether there was any 
you know, brain activity going on. You don't wait till they, you know, you whisper in there and see if they look around or anything. Nothing. I mean, they, you know, so they, they, they did that as a test. I was really surprised um, at that at that age or non-age. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um, Benjamin Lippitt wired these people up, and he had them do a random motion of some kind, like punch a button or wave their hand or some punch a button. And what he discovered was that the intention to push the button arose almost a half second before the subject was consciously aware of making that decision. That the welling up of intention happened as part of a process that became aware almost after the fact, sort of like the rock tossed into the air, um, became aware. And this disturbs a lot of people because it suggests <laughs> who's in charge here? Yeah, free will, really at the heart, at the heart of it. Or even free will, will at all. I mean, our impulses, our intentions, our desires happen to us. And we take responsibility for it. We say, I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm whatever. And I think some of this is just um, the result of linguistic convention, although it's not convention, really. But, you know, when you say, it's raining, what is this it? You know, it's, it's cold, I'm cold. We add a subject into this. But things are happening, and they're happening to us. And then we struggle to try to patch some uh, sense um, onto this experience of how it's us, and it's ours, and we're doing it, and uh, we're responsible. I think a lot of that is, you know, language, uh, just the conventions of language, since <coughs> since. Almost any sentence, in addition to a verb, has something that's verbing. You know? And so we sort of, you know, graft on a self, you know, us. Um, the universe happens, life happens. Our intentions, our motivations, they happen to us. Life is what happens to us while we're busy making other plans. These other plans are part of these, this, you know, punch the button. You know, uh, it it is a result of the causes and conditions in the midst of which we find ourselves. In a way, this is all in accord with um, the Buddha's description of our experience broadly, um, or. Existence, sometimes it's described as existence, not that I'm able to distinguish between the two. Um, Impermanence. Everything is in motion. Everything is in motion. And because of that, there's nothing that you can point to that is capable of providing any, any real satisfaction. 
and, and the third of these qualities is, well, the word anatta, I, I, you know, not self. There's no entity here, no agent anywhere. And I remember Sylvia saying, you know, the first time she heard the, the description of the three characteristics of existence or experience, uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, she thought, well, two out of three is not bad. Um, not that we like this stuff. Anybody here like the fact that we're impermanent? You know, even that we are just a moment's sunlight, you know, whatever. And you make it all kinds of dreamy and wonderful, but, you know, this impermanence business, the only time we really like it is when we're in the midst of a bummer of some kind. <laughs> and, then we do, and then we do the, and then we do the, this too will pass. But when things are going great, we don't, we don't, we don't tend to reach for that one. You know. So, you know, impermanence is not really our favorite. And boy, do we, you know, the idea that there's nothing capable of providing any satisfaction. We don't even want to hear that. That's what we're practicing for, for some satisfaction. You know. Now, last one is really interesting. It's it's translated often as not self, anatta, which is which is somewhat um, almost not literal, but but pretty, pretty uh, close translation of the word. But, but I've also heard it recently uh, translated as impersonality. You know, there's, it's just empty conditions rolling on. The phenomena of the world is just happening. Life is what happens to us. Life is what happens. This is just happening. You know? And... Um, and if there's no self present, there's except the thought of self that arises within us and the the emotional reaction that we have to ourselves, to this thought of self. Um, and it's all unfolding according to the causes and conditions of the of the uh, uh, this universal field that we're in that we are part of. I was I was uh, listening to Steve Armstrong um, talk about this recently, and I thought, boy, if there's no agent here, I said to him, "So what you're what you're suggesting is that the impulse to awaken is just an example of intelligent design." And without missing a beat, he said, yes, thank God. (laughs) So, you know, this is this impersonal experience that is occurring. And we'd we'd like to think to us. (laughs) Um, Or to each other, we'll share it. Um, this is where we find ourselves. Where is, where, where is the potential for freedom? Because that's in this practice, that's what we talk about, right? I mean, that's, 
that's that's we're doing something here. <laughs> you know, uh, Lippitt said that the the only place for free will in this whole scheme was in the potential for not taking up that impulse that arises. For not, you know, for just sitting and watching, for just observing, for being aware, for just being aware of what's arising and, of course, what's passing. So, so the potential here is completely in accord with the Dharma. Becoming aware of what's arising and passing. And to ground ourselves, we use, we use our breath as a, as a, a target um, for practice, for wetting our consciousness, for, for, for training it, our awareness. To just be aware... <clears throat> of what's arising, and that's, that's the freedom, the freedom not to act out on the impulses that arise. And, you know, these, the impulses, I don't know whether, whether this happens to you, you probably have examples of your own, but I, I know this from uh, times when I get startled, you know, um, and when I think of that, I think of something coming at my face like a, a bug, and even before I can react, my hand waves it away. You, know, or you just flinch. Something, and it's almost like the, when the doctor hits your knee and, the, and your knee flaps or your leg flaps. You know, it's, it's reflex. It happens before, almost before you're aware of it. So all this stuff is just happening and something is going on and that something is the the term that we use in 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 our tradition is clinging, you know, um, and it's it's the one thing that's Joseph Goldstein says is the one thing that's common to all all three of the traditions. He um, spent some time trying to work out how the the Tibetan, the Zen, and the Theravadan traditions um, were manifestations of the same thing. And he came in his book One Dharma. He says basically there's no None of these traditions, in none of these traditions, do they, do the teachers say, cling. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't say cling. Um, so, this clinging, you know, nothing whatsoever, is to be clung to. We don't clinging is, we cling to the idea of not clinging. <laughs> no. Don't we? Yeah. You know? um, we we do we cling to we cling to all kinds of stuff we cling to the dharma you know um i i once sat in a in a um a meeting uh, a group dharma study group and watched a bunch of people gang up on one poor woman who said she did have a self and they were telling her she didn't you know <laughs> you don't have a self i do have a self i don't you know um and i thought you know we <laughs> We can, we, we're looking so desperately to cling to something, to stop this onrushing, impermanent experience, to create some, some, something satisfying. Um, so what is this clinging like? 
we all do it, but it's it's subtle. It's hard to to spot. It's it's the wanting. You know, the the second noble truth is that the cause of our suffering, our discomfort, is is our dissatisfaction is wanting, wanting things different, wanting things different than they are. And that wanting is painful itself, just in itself. It can make us cry, you know, when we want things to be different, particularly when we're dealing with, you know, life and death issues and, and loss, issues of loss, and wanting things. What a surprise. Life is impermanent. You know, one of my friends likes to to joke about the woman who died unexpectedly at age 92. Um, <laughs> you know, what we look around, what do we expect? But we don't. We just we just don't like impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and this not self business, whatever it means. But, but the thought is that if we were totally, you know, with the way things were, just this is the way they are, they're not going to be great. Um, the sickness that we have, the sadness, what else do we expect? That sadness is suffering because we expect it to be different, we want it to be different. And that's the, that's, that is our suffering. That is the suffering that the Buddha is pointing to. That clinging, that, that sad... And we, we certainly don't want to feel that. And we'll do all kinds of things. We'll make it much worse trying to, <laughs> to not have to feel that sadness. Some, in some ways, it's sort of like scratching an itch, you know, like you get, or a mosquito bite. That's, that's my favorite one. Because if you actually pay attention to the scratching, it's not pleasant. It's a counter-irritant, really. And you can actually wind up tearing your flesh to make that itch go away. Well, I can. <laughs> no. um, becoming free from that clinging impulse that impulse to want things pleasant, want things different. And, and really, we're wanting things more pleasant and less painful. Somewhere on that, that continuum, we want the valence to move in the direction of pleasant. Right? I mean, sort of. To be free of that, is to is is you know to experience it with awareness clear awareness just to experience it as it happens and see it clearly just feel deeply what we're doing when we're wanting tough to do you know as my as i used to to practice tai chi and my teacher used to do something very, he'd move his hand really slowly and he'd say, look so easy, but how do you do it? <laughs> that was the line he used all the time. Oh, it's the move, it's really simple, but how do you do it? Sounds so simple, to be free of clinging. 
But, you know, when you cling to wanting to be free, when you cling to clinging or being free from clinging, you know, it's the thought in our mind that we cling to. So how do we do that? Well, the answer is, is pretty visible. I mean, the Buddha's teaching was you know, the Eightfold Path. And, I mean, that's... When I, when I first started practicing, eight sounded way too big. <laughs> sounded way too many. Eight? My gosh, you know. And then I heard about the 12 links of dependent origination, and oh my gosh. They were in the 37 wings of awakening. And the, <laughs> these, these, were, these were lists beyond comprehension. I just wanted a simple... Of course, the simple thing, which is don't cling, pay attention... <laughs> You know, we're back in the realm of sounds so simple, but how do you do it? But the Eightfold Path is the Buddha's path, and it seems to me, I mean, that's his, his instructions. And so I'd like, to, I'd like to go through the elements of the path. Um, almost, you know, there's, there's a couple of ways of doing this. One is to get up real close to one, and, I, you know, you can spend, you could spend, hours talking about any one of them. And, and people do. We may have. I have. You probably have. Some of you, anyway. Or you can step back and try to take it all in and see what it's getting at generally. And I'd sort of like to do that. Um, because <clears throat> what we want, generally, is relief from the dissatisfaction of our experience, with our experience. We want relief from it. And the way we go about trying to find relief is we try to get what we want. Whatever it is we want, we've got an idea of what will make that discomfort go away. I'm hungry, I'll have another muffin. Why did I think muffin? Well, because <laughs> that's where I'm headed after, <laughs> after this. Um, we, we, the, the idea of relief is getting what we want. And, and that will provide a little relief, but it won't, you know, momentary, because the next moment another desire will arise. But freedom from that suffering is different. And that's what the Eightfold Path is addressing. Now, it's usually... Um, there are eight elements, and for those of you who... Um, aren't intimately familiar with them. I'm going to rattle them off pretty quick. And they're usually described as right understanding, right intention, etc. I'm going to leave off the right part because um, I, just want to, I just want to identify the realms that they address. So it's understanding and intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and... Well, concentration, I, I like the, the word stability more. And they're clumped in three, they're usually grouped in three, three groups. So the first two, understanding and intention, are grouped together. And then speech, action, and livelihood are grouped together. And effort, mindfulness, 
and uh, stability or concentration are grouped together. And the, the groups are, are often described in many ways, but I think the first, the first group is about understanding. It's about you know, understanding and intention. It's, it's the wisdom element. It's the, the, um, the knowing element. And then speech, action, and livelihood, these are, these are about restraining our behavior. It's about sitting and watching, not taking up that impulse that's occurring before we're conscious of it. You know, the, the rock has been thrown into the air, us, and all of a sudden we're aware that we, we want something. And this is about restraining behavior, particularly in areas which um, are going to give us uh, more turbulence in our lives, make things worse. Really, that's, in a way, that's what we're trying to do, is to restrain the kinds of activities that we do that make things worse. You know, in some ways, that's, that's... a huge, a huge contribution to ourselves and to others to just not make things worse. It can be um, a, a, a really helpful underpinning for our practice, just to not make things worse. I remember listening to um, uh, an NPR program. It was probably Talk of the Nation, some uh, a couple of years ago, and it was it was coming up to the Christmas holiday season, and and they had a panel of experts how to. <coughs> how to get along at the holiday dinner. You know. And, and they, were, they all had advice, you know, and, and people were calling in and saying, well, what about when your mother-in-law says da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And what about when you're, you know... And nobody said... They all said, well, dodge this and, you know, deflect that. And, but nobody said, just don't you be the asshole at the table. (laughs) Don't you be the one making it worse. It's just, it's it's always out there. It's nobody... So so these areas about speech, action, and livelihood, which are um, considered the sila, the areas of moral restraint... They're the, they're the practices where, where we, we don't take up the impulse, the want, the cling that would impel us to push the button or you know, make things worse. And the last is cultivating. Cultivating... Um, our ability to see more clearly, to see things as they are, to not be deluded by the thoughts we have about things. Christopher Titmus likes to say, everything you think is wrong. <clears throat> and, you know, he does like to get a rise out of everybody. Um, but he's getting at something, which is that the thoughts that we have about the world and our life are not I mean what we barely even know what's going on in the universe. I hang out on the NASA website because it's it's real 
handy because they have these little video clips. You don't have to read anything. You just click the button and somebody talks to you and says, did you know black holes, da 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 You can sort of sit there and... And I'm... Uh, okay, I am really lazy. So what, I, what I've learned, you guys know about dark matter? I mean, most of the universe, it turns out, is dark matter, whatever that is. We don't know what it is, but we know it's there. Really, 80%, they say on the NASA site, or this voice says, on the NASA site, says 80%. What? We don't even have language for that. We don't even have a clue. And yet we'll, we'll think, well, we know what's going on in the world, da-da-da-da, global warming, or we, you know, whatever. Boy, it's, you know, and we... And we and, and what do we do? We cling to our ideas, the ideas, the thoughts we have. You know, so what we're trying to do with effort, mindfulness, and, and concentration or stability, it takes effort to do this. It takes effort to be able to see things as they are because we're distracted by our thoughts, by our thoughts of how things are. Don't we believe, you know, we, we think we've got an idea about what's going on. Okay, maybe we're more more or less wrong, but we got some, we're less wrong. I mean, there's something there, right? Those ideas, those thoughts. The Buddha's shortest, the shortest Dharma talk that I know that he gave um, is one of my favorites, but he was, uh, he arrived in town and, and one of the, you know, at the, at the time there were a lot of forest-dwelling the samanas, the people who'd gone forth for the purpose of achieving some kind of spiritual awakening. And there was this guy, Bahia, who heard the Buddha was in town. He thought, oh, you know, I've been working at this for a while, and here comes, you know, the, this, the, the uh, samana Gautama. And so he tracks him down, and he comes up to him, and he says, I've been working at this for a while. Can you help me out? And the Buddha says, well, I'm on alms rounds. Why don't you come back after lunch? And he says, you know, I, I know enough about the Dharma to know there may be no after lunch. So, you know, <laughs> could, maybe, you could, maybe you could help me out now. So the Buddha said, okay. And, he, and the talk that he gave was, in the seeing, only the seeing. In the hearing, only the hearing. In the touching, the tasting. And in the thinking and the cognizing, only the thinking, seeing the thoughts as thoughts, the knowing, as just as knowing, regardless of the content, not being distracted by the content, just to see it as it arises. This is the, this is the response to uh, lipids. You know, the impulse arises before we're conscious of it. We become aware of it, we see it as it is. We don't get distracted by it. And so we can see the impermanence of all things because there isn't, you know, two successive moments. I hate the thought of successive moments because, because that's a conceptual notion that there's a moment and then there's another moment. This, try this. Imagine spatially the past, the present, and the future. And let me just ask, where, where is the past located? Is it behind you? Now, there, there are two different ways of doing it. And some people, so for a lot of people, the past is behind, the present is here, and the future is ahead. For some people, 
The past is to the left. The future is here, and, or the present is here on the future right. How many people left to right? How many people back to front? Yeah. And then some of us are just adrift, totally. <laughs> past? You guys are in good shape. <laughs> So I hate the, the notion of successive moments because basically all we've got is the present. This is just the present moment. And this is the same moment that the Buddha lived. Things have changed a bit, <laughs> but it's the same present moment. And the rest, the concept of, well, that's 2,500 years ago, those are thoughts. Those are just thoughts. And if we can maintain stability of mindfulness, to just see those thoughts arising and passing, see them just as thoughts, then the wisdom, it feeds back on the wisdom. The wisdom, our ability to see and understand, um, deepens. And then with that, so we we can sort of trip right through the eight eight paths as as our understanding deepens, as we see more clearly our intention will change. Our intention towards ourselves, others, the world. It's not a mistake that the Buddha put intention after understanding. Because our intentions follow from our understanding. If we think that, you know, if if we have an understanding that if we're late to work one more time, we're going to be fired... We're going to act in response to that. Whatever, whatever understanding we have, if, if our understanding is that you know, the, our current military excursions are causing pain and suffering and we don't like that, we're going to, our intention will be to try to do something to end that. Or whatever. Whatever our intention is. If we think that somebody is going to try to cut in on us and we're in traffic and We've just had enough of that. <laughs> you know, our intention is going to flow from that. Intention flows from our understanding, which is why it's so important that we not be attached to, de- to our delusions. Because if we act on the basis of delusion, if we act on the basis of misunderstanding of how things are, then we are going to make things worse for ourselves and for others. So, right intention, right understanding, the Pali word, Pali as the language that the Buddha spoke, Pali word is sama, and it's, in, it's interpreted most, most frequently as right. On the little wheel up the hill, it's skillful, wise, wise, right, wise understanding. But basically, it's understanding and intention that do not add to suffering, because that's it's the fourth part of the fourth of the of the uh, uh, four noble truths, and the purpose of this path is this is the way to the end of of suffering, to freedom from from that clinging, and the and so understanding thing, not being deluded, is really at the heart. It's the first of the elements, this understanding. 
And delusion is tricky because any of us think we're deluded? Good job, yeah. How do you know that that's... <laughs> if, if, if there's even an inkling that you're not, if you're even entertaining the question... And, it's, and, and particularly, the delusions are that it's, you know, that, okay, maybe things aren't permanent, but they're permanent for practical purposes. You know, for all practical purposes, there's some stability. And that it's possible to satisfy ourselves by getting what we want. Aren't we still, isn't that what we're still doing? Trying to get what we want? Even if what we want is liberation and freedom and peace in the world, and we're trying to get that. And how are we doing? (laughs) And that it's all about me. That's, you know, almost everything that occurs in the world we, we relate to ourselves. So then, you know, and, and, and clinging, when it comes to our ideas about the way things are, clinging is about belief. It's we believe, we believe it. We believe something. We believe the sky is blue. Well, of course it's blue, right? You know the Zen thing, what is this? You call it a pen, I'll smack you 30 times. You say it's not a pen, I'll smack you 30 times. What is it? It's an effort to try to not deal with our, to think through the, the, the thinking, the clinging to the thoughts, which, you know, as, as thoughts, they're just thoughts, but you know, the, the, their, their attempts to map our experience, to map our world. The first law of, uh-oh, Semantics is the map is not the territory. You know, the word your mother is not your mother, right? It's just not. Pen, well, that's just a concept that we apply to it. You know, somebody who's never seen a pen, my, grand, my new granddaughter doesn't look at this and see pen. I'm not sure what you... <laughs> what she sees, but, you know, um, it's, the, it's the believing. And so that first element, right view, mm-hmm. it's not just knowing the right thing. It's not just, okay, I got it. Impermanence, check. Unsatisfactory, check. Not self, got it. Okay, now I'm cool. It's not. That's. It's not just. Um, the Buddha tells uh, what he the uh, simile of the raft. You guys know the simile of the raft. He says, you know, so you're. It's a. It's actually a, a longer thing. There's lots of words in there. 
She says, a guy comes along and he comes to a river and he can't get across the river and he wants to get to the other side and so he, he, he uh, gathers up sticks and grass and logs and he ties them all together and he uses them paddling with his arms and his legs. He, float, he gets, a, gets in so, effort. Right? He paddles across to the other side. When he gets to the other side, he says, this raft has just been great for me. I think I'll carry it around. So, you know. so it's, the, it's the same with the Dharma. Even the teachings <clears throat> are to be held lightly, not clung to. They're used. You know, in Zen they say Zen is a finger pointing at the moon. But if you mistake the finger for the moon, what help is there? <clears throat> and so the teachings are pointing at that freedom. They're pointing at <clears throat> the end of the end of suffering. But if we cling to them, not gonna work. And we shouldn't cling to anything. Nothing. And if we don't, then what kind of an intention will arise? An intention for what? There may be a response to a suffering being that we encounter, and that will arise within, within us. What will arise is compassion, because we'll see the suffering. If we aren't seeing the suffering in every other person we encounter, it's because we're thinking of ourselves. You know, how is this for me? What is, what's up for me? Because the first noble truth is that Suffering and unsatisfactoriness, that's all of us, each of us. We're all in that boat. There's none of us, I don't think. Anybody here, it's going the way you, you planned? You know? <laughs> the way you'd script it out? Yeah. yeah. We're all in that same boat. So that understanding and the intention, what intention? John Cage, a uh, composer, uh, the last century used to say how do he maybe he even wrote a book titled how to improve the world colon you'll only make matters worse (laughs) (laughs) so understanding that is a huge is a huge um, part of the practice and the restraint of our of our behavior that will make things worse. Those are the elements of speech, skillful speech, wise speech, right speech, right action and right livelihood. And oh my gosh, you know, we generally know these as the precepts, um, the precepts that um, are part of, the, part of our practice. And, and we take the precepts in this class formally uh, once a month we get together and, and reaffirm them and revisit them and just make sure that we're remembering because remembering is the toughest part. Joseph Goldstein says, being mindful isn't hard, but remembering to be mindful is hard. <laughs> you know, even when you sit with your eyes closed, you know how hard it is to remember to stay with your breath? Oops, missed the breath again. Um, and so, you know, the precept practice... Um, 
is at the heart and livelihood is left off. We sort of don't know where to go with livelihood because we often equate that with our job, what we do, and, you know, is, is, right? And if, if we're not making weapons or dealing in poison or, you know, trading in living beings, isn't that what the, those were the things that the Buddha said? Was poison, don't deal in poisons, weapons, trading in living beings. I think those were, there may have been another one. Then we say we're okay. But what if you're managing a safe way? There's certainly poisons in there, and if you got you know lobsters in the or 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 uh, oysters in the fish department, you got living beings, and you know um, what was the other one? Weapons. I suppose you could, there's enough chemistry in there to make anything you want explode. You know, livelihood we sort of write off. But livelihood is, is much deeper. It's about not just what we do, because in this, in this society it's much more complex than it was for the Buddha. You know, almost anything we do uh, you know, winds up, we get, we get paid in money, and that's an abstraction that we then use to construct a life and a lifestyle. And so it's about both. It's about the lifestyle we construct, not just about the way we the way we support ourselves. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, um, you know, the restraint from acting out greed, aversion, and delusion. That's what these, these three elements are about. They're more, it's, it's described or characterized as moral restraint. But it's just restraining that impulse that arises, that Lippert was saying, that impulse to push the button, just to watch that impulse arise. And then just before you go and punch the button, you say, ah, desire, wanting, punch the button. And the, and the freedom is there. <coughs> and the bliss of, you know, when you try to punch the button, usually what we're doing is something more complex than punching the button, and it usually doesn't wind up with the button being punched. And the, and the, the last elements, effort, mindfulness, and stability. Well, you know, effort is... You can't... And these things are all tied together because you can't really practice moral restraint without effort because the usual impulse, you know, going with the current of what is arising. Now, the rock's been thrown in the air. The impulse arises before we're aware of it. <clears throat> going with the flow is just what we've been doing all along. So it takes effort. You know, it's not just... It takes effort to maintain mindfulness. We know that. We sit and we close our eyes and we aim at our breath with our attention and the next thing we know, we're noticing that we haven't been, (laughs) you know, watching the breath. Or in the seeing, only the seeing, in the hearing, the tasting, the touching, you know, in the thinking. 
we maintain that kind of attention towards all that arises, just what's arising. And the ability to maintain that mindfulness in the midst of this onrushing experience, that's the stability, that's the concentration that the Buddha is, is pointing at. And without mindfulness, the precept practice is going to be tough because you're just not even going to notice until we're already halfway down the path. Um, you know, taking what is not freely given. Now, that doesn't just apply to you know, somebody's lunch. It applies to their time, their attention, their consent, all kinds of things. And the more, the more we are able to maintain that, it takes effort to maintain that mindfulness, effort to maintain the stability of mindfulness that lets us see more deeply, that feeds back into our understanding that things are just as they are, and that how to, make thing, how to, how to change the world will only make things worse. No. And so we restrain our activity in an effort not to make things worse. So the Eightfold Path is, is the path. That's what else to pay attention to, what else to work with. The Eightfold Path is the path for freedom from suffering, not just the relief of the discomfort that comes with the desire. Because when we're just looking for relief... People do all, we all do all kinds of crazy things. We've all got addictions of one kind or another, you know, habits of one kind or another, you know, that, that, you know, try to lighten things for a moment. But the Buddhist path is the path of freedom. Freedom from the clinging, from the discomfort that comes from wanting things to be different from the the way they are, doesn't mean that we're not going to enjoy pleasant when it arises. But we're not going to make it worse by trying to make it last longer than it's going to last. And we're not going to make the unpleasant worse by anguishing over how it's shown up. Life is what happens to us when we're busy making other plans. The other plans happen to us too. We happen to us. All of it happens to us. It's all empty phenomena rolling on. Sometimes it's amazing what the Buddha saw. I think there are a lot of people, you know, there are people who uh, have very deep awakenings. It's a great book by a woman named Jan Fraser seen a picture of her. She looks just like any of us. And she had a moment of awakening in which she came to the end of suffering. Wow, she looks like she's in her 20s. Yeah, the book may be out there. It's called When Fear Falls Away. She just had a, she'd been practicing for a long time and then had a moment where she had to go for a mammogram and it was a not a promising moment for her and she thought maybe is there a way I could do this without 
being afraid. And apparently that was it. And the book is very interesting, but she doesn't have a practice like the Buddha provided us with a path. So sometimes we forget the path in the midst of all the other things that we're thinking about and clinging to and wishing for. So I just wanted to bring us back to that because that, that really is his teaching, those elements, and to encourage us to work with them. So let me just take a moment, the last few moments that we've got here, and see what you think of all that. <laughs> see what kind of questions happen. Please. I'm uh, bewildered by the concept of non-self. Uh-huh. And I'd like to know where, who resists the impulse to push the button? Who chooses uh, right speed? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you're loading it up because you're asking for a who. So I would have to say there is no who, but what happens is that when there's a certain, when, when you, when you, and some of this is linguistic, you know, our language really tricks us. So let's just regard this as conventional, but when you become aware that, um, of what Lippitt found, for example, we do have, the, the, there is an opportunity because of our understanding to not, just not take up a, uh, an angry impulse. Ah, there's anger. Look at that. Mm, tight. Tight in my chest and my jaw. Boy, anger. We can just see it as it is. Who? I guess... The Zen people would say, "Find, look into yourself and see. See who, they, you know, um, in the in the uh, uh, Hindu tradition that becomes a major meditative task. Who wants to know? Show me this self, you know. And there's all the the little tricks to try to get you. So we there's bewilderment because our mind map has us at the center of the world. It's all you know." It's, it's all about me. Global warming? Oh, do I have to move to Canada? You know, do I have to put in air conditioning? Um, you know, what's it going to mean for me? We all interpret the world in terms of ourselves. So there's a lot of habit there. But if we just watch those things arise and pass, you know, is there any stable thing there? It's... it's, it's as Sylvia said, two out of three is not bad. <laughs> it's the one that really it's it's the one that really befuddles us the most. And I've I've come to start thinking of it in terms of impersonality. Everything, nothing you can point to, is personal. And boy, that sure seems to be true. The thoughts about myself they arise and they pass. Well, there's still a lot of habit. A lot of. Uh, a lot of habit, but I, I, you know, I recognize it as habit. Is that helpful at all? <coughs> to tell you the truth, when I ask the question, "Who resists the impulse?" and you answer it using the words "me" and "I" and "you," 
No. <laughs> yeah? Well, the idea is not to answer it with a word, not use a concept. Try to find what that concept refers to. Mother is not your mother. The word mother is not your mother. The word me is not who you are. You are not the word me. So what is that word referring to? So try to find that in your experience. Something that last week um, Donald said something along the lines of it's not all self, but it's not also all no self. That there's some way that either extreme doesn't quite Mm -hmm. get at it. So I'm just thinking about that as you're talking about there is no self, but then... There's obviously some consciousness. I don't know. It just feels. The Buddha never said there is no self, actually. He never came out and said no self. What he said was that there's nothing you can point to, there's nothing in experience. So if if there is something, it's not anything you can point to. It's dark matter. It's dark matter, right. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. Anything else? Please. That's certainly opening. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that I don't have a self. It means that everything is myself. That's... So I sort of got away from the semantics, which was disturbing me about not self. Uh-huh. Does everybody hear what she's saying? Mm-hmm. The, uh, that's, that's, um, that's what you see when you, when you aren't preoccupied with your own with what's arising, when it be, doesn't that, with that impulse, that desire, when that's not the focus of your attention, and then you you see, that's, yeah. And that's that feels freer. It feels freer. Yeah. Please. I was just so thrilled that you were stuck in traffic. <laughs> Well, you're welcome for my... <laughs> if I had known that, I would have, I would have changed my attitude uh, towards this truck. So thank you guys for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.